0: Hello, I'm Vivian Parry, Head of Public Engagement at Genomics England and it's my pleasure today to be guest hosting today's episode of The G Word. We're trying to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone and that involves accelerating genomic research and also working with the NHS to bring genomics into the heart of healthcare. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses. Hope, fear, anger, There's a lot of information out there, but a lot of myths too. And it's not all accessible to non-experts. So we want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the G word. Now the 100,000 Genomes Project recruited about 70,000 people who generously agreed to donate their genome sequence, information about their condition and its treatment, as well as their lifelong health data. Most of these people came from families affected by undiagnosed rare disease. And thanks to the project, about 25% were able to receive a diagnosis for the first time. All the data now sits in the National Genomic Research Library. Genomics England is its guardian and researchers from all around the world now access this data to increase the number of diagnoses and to do research to better understand and treat these difficult conditions. We have around 30 huddles of researchers, technically called a GSIP or Genomics England Clinical Interpretation Partnership, to give it its proper name, who focus on particular groups of conditions. And today we wanted to focus on the work of the skin g And I'm delighted to be joined by two dermatologists, Dr. Neil Rajan from the University of Newcastle, who not only leads the g but also runs a dermatology genomics research programme, and Professor Ruth Murphy from the Sheffield Teaching Hospitals NHS Trust, who besides being an active and busy clinician is also a past president of both the British Association of Dermatology and the British Association of Paediatric and Adolescent Dermatology. Welcome to you both.
1: Good morning Vivian, thanks for having us on your call.
0: Good morning, thank you. So uh, Ruth, let me turn to you first of all, how common are these rare conditions? That sounds an odd thing to say because rare conditions people just think of as being, you know, you only see once in a lifetime, but for the clinician in a specialised clinic like yours, how often are you coming across these rare conditions?
2: Well, that's a really interesting question because um, the first step in, in, any, in the identification of any um, rare condition is recognising the features that lead to the diagnosis. And that is easy to do if um, the person sitting in front of you has got classical signs. But in dermatology um, and in, in life in general, things are never that easy. And uh, somebody's clinical presentation, their phenotype can be very, very, very subtle. And to, to give you an, uh, an example, we spend an awful lot of our time as dermatologists doing cancer two-week weight clinics. And I can remember a couple of years ago, somebody being referred in with a possible skin cancer, it has got a little growth around the toenail. And this was a periungal fibroma, which is uh, one of the features of tuberous sclerosis, which people would consider as a rare disorder. And at that point, Nobody had recognised this as a possible diagnosis. The person was otherwise fit and well um, and had just been referred in because this, this little growth was catching on their socks and clothing. So it is important, but it's important in ways that are not obvious. You've got, you know, the extreme cases of children born in the first few weeks of life with uh, a, a range of clinical signs and symptoms that don't easily fit a phenotype that you may want to do genetics on to try and and classify um, the diagnosis um, to help. The family and the affected individual um, and you know th- these people may have a, a life-threatening um, disorder uh, and at the other extreme people who are otherwise entirely fit and well and in their 40s walking with a with a, a lesion and up until that point they were not aware of the diagnosis and what's important for that person is that for um, future family planning and counseling it's important to know these diagnoses as well as for their own health so It's amazingly important, but not in ways that are are always obvious. But we are talking about diagnoses in utero, from birth, and right up until later life with the less severe phenotypes.
0: So to be clear, we have two things going on here. We have a lot of rare disease where skin is a is is part of the phenotype of that particular disease. So if we talk about something like Ehlers-Danlos, where we have very stretchy skin, for instance, but then we also have, Neil, don't we, a lot of uh, skin conditions which are in themselves uh, rare and where it involves only the skin.
1: Absolutely, Vivian, and I think um, why I really love dermatology is um, the, the variety of different things that can turn up in a clinic, not just in a specialist centre, but you know across the land where. We might have a patient in who's got cancer, as Ruth just suggested, with melanoma, and we've managed that. We'd see a child who's got severe eczema, and their parents are you know, climbing up the wall trying to get them to sleep at night and improve their therapy. And then straight after that, we'll get a rare condition um, in front of us. And we just have to switch tracks very, very quickly. In dermatology, there are almost 3,000 different diagnoses one can give. And rare conditions, one might see a particular rare condition every... Two or three years in uh, a dermatologist 's career, but there are some um, rare conditions that turn up every week and and from this catalogue of you know um, thousands of diagnoses, um, dermatologists have to be switched on to pick up on these really subtle signs i when, when their brain is in cancer mode and thinking, oh is this a melanoma of the toenail, for example, as Ruth's just highlighted, they have to be able to you know, step back, look at the patient holistically, take a history, and then say, well, actually, this patient doesn't have melanoma, but we need to do a genetic test here because it could be tuberous sclerosis. And you, you know that that's got implications for the family.
0: So I know that dermatologists are brilliant phenotypers so that they can look at a patient and they're very, very skilled at picking up those very subtle signs, as you said, uh, Ruth, of Different, But actually genomics provides another level, doesn't it, of information. So uh, Neil, what does uh, uh, genomics add to a diagnosis that will help both you and the patient?
1: Um, Vivian, I think that's a great question. I think um, what we stand as, as uh, phenotypers to gain here is a molecular handle on, on a label that one may say is um based on dermatology's history to be able to look at clinical signs recognize a pattern or a constellation of features that are presenting together and say i think this is this particular condition now for a long time we've used latin we've used eponyms to capture this and and that's got us to to where we are now and and the layer that genomics adds is that it gives us incontrovertible proof and evidence that there is a change in a particular gene um, that is likely to be causing this condition, particularly in the rare single gene disorders. And what this can mean for patients is that they now have a little tag or flag in their DNA that can be tested for, that genetic counselling can be done uh, on the basis of, uh, but increasingly can link them to patient groups, which are global, um, and suddenly their rare condition um, and feeling like the only person on the planet who's got that, um, that's, you know, transformed. Because now we have a scenario where A person is able to connect with people all over the world. As a brief example, um, this Saturday in the lead up to Rare Disease Day for patients with Cylindromas, where we have expertise in Newcastle, we're having a global um, Facebook-led Zoom meeting uh, where about 60 of us will all jump on a call and hear about the latest research. So it can be really transformational.
0: And presumably, Ruth, sometimes a genomic diagnosis can give you a clue as to how a particular condition could be treated more effectively, because some of these genetically caused conditions are really difficult to treat, aren't they? And you may have tried many things with without great success.
2: Yes. I mean, when you are talking about that, that's true. When you are talking about diagnosis, um, it how that translates to effective therapies is, is more complicated than it first seems. Um, one of the problems with genetics for many years um, has been that um, there was, as Neil said, the clinical diagnosis. Um, if you can do effective genotyping, you can get the relevant genotype. But then the patient in front of you always wants to know so what can you do to help me? And, and that next step in terms of, of developing targeted therapies, I think is, um, you know, the, the they, it's almost the holy grail because uh, it is there isn't a one-size-fits-all. I mean, we know that not just in the monogenic disorders, but in the polygenic disorders um, where we look at... So
0: monogenic, you mean just a single... Sorry, d- d- sorry to interrupt. Monogenic, you just mean it's a single gene.
2: Yes. And even the single gene disorders, there's probably uh, modifying factors because we know that you don't get um, complete... Uh, genotype penetration so you get incomplete phenotypes uh, and you know that may alter response to therapy but if you look at something like psoriasis or eczema where people might think oh well you know they we know an awful lot about those conditions they've been described for years there are several uh, genetic variants um, that have been identified um, and and lots of um, new therapies that have been developed in the last 15 or 20 years, particularly for psoriasis and more recently for eczema. But what we find is that um, not one treatment fits all conditions. And that is undoubtedly because of a combination of genotypic factors and phenotypic factors. And whilst we, we have started with the many gene, the polygenic diseases, even the monogenic diseases may not have an absolute treatment um, for everybody. There will be variations in response to any targeted therapy. Um, so that is, you, you know, it's an important thing to bear in mind.
0: So Neil, having a genetic diagnosis can help guide treatment, but it can also be the starting point for thinking about how you might treat those diseases in the future.
1: Uh, absolutely, Vivian. And, and I think the really interesting space there are emerging clinical trials. Now, the dermatologists armamentarium for a long time have included um, things that reduce inflammation. Um, and, and these are uh, now shifting to sort of as Ruth re- hinted at, single molecule targeting antibodies, um, kinase inhibitors. And so we are now writing prescriptions for treatments which are really, really quite focused. Now, I think the exciting space for patients who are in the uh, era when you can get a a genetic result in four months from Genomics England um, is that this opens the door to clinical trials and new research. And I think this is so important to emphasize because there is the... uh, Space where now that we are able to a have molecular tools that will enable us to target single gene disorders, um, there is also the scenario to see will they actually work, and the clinical trials are best placed to recruit based on genetic level data. Until we know how many of these patients have these diagnoses, we can't even start the trial. So you're in this classic chicken and egg situation where people will say, how will my genetic diagnosis make a difference today? But it's almost a scenario of saying, well, until we know how many people have that genetic diagnosis, we can't actually get pharma engaged. We can't get industry engaged to you know, help us develop these trials that will help answer some really important questions about therapy and efficacy.
0: And we are seeing some really rapid advances in uh, the treatment of skin conditions. Uh, it, it's it's also a, a key point about this is that until you know what somebody has definitively, you can't start building, as you say, a community for patients, but you can't start building a registry. And I know you're very involved with registries, Neil. So So tell me a bit about that.
1: So I think we're very fortunate um, in England to have the National Disease Registration Service, which used to be Public Health England. In brief, they used to to run the congenital anomalies registry, which would look at uh, neonates and newborns who were born with different um, genetic conditions. And now this is expanded to include. Um, a range of different rare genetic disorders. And and the sort of three arms that have started have included rare liver disease, rare rheumatological disease, and rare skin disease. And Mary Bithell, who leads on this, has been really fantastic in bringing in dermatology trainees to help start to look at um, public health England-level data. Now, the reason this registry approach is so important is it, it will let us count the patients across the land with rare diseases. For example, We used to think that ichthyoses, which were severe, were actually quite rare. But um, in brief, we can say that our preliminary work, to look at this across England, just with a a search to start, say that, you know, more than 3,000 patients are out there uh, with ichthyoses, and we're starting to now look at these individuals really quite carefully. I think what's really exciting is that these registries are going to be able to weave in outputs from the genetic genomics test directory. And so we're going to be able now to start to to build numbers uh, which will all be carefully safeguarded behind government firewalls and all the relevant governance of individuals who have genetic conditions with a skin phenotype. And then we can start to think about how we can use these numbers to look at natural history studies, which are so important in rare disease, and also clinical trials.
0: Now, it's odd, really, because I don't know why, but somehow people don't connect the skin and genomics. And I don't know why that is, because if you stop people in the street and say, uh, is eczema something that runs in families? Almost everybody will tell you, oh yes, it does. So the knowledge that genomics is involved in skin disease is out there and yet it's not connected Uh, Either perhaps by clinicians or or by patients. Ruth, what do you think the block is there? Why are dermatologists, uh, well, not so much, uh, not keen to embrace genomics, uh, but not actually embracing genomics?
2: I think it's partly because um, up until very, very recently, the level of detail that Neil has alluded to in terms of sure, well, the the science allowing us to identify relevant genetic mutations uh, and the hope of being able to accumulate them on registries and as Neil has alluded to in the future design clinical trials, all those steps are, are actually... Um, relatively recent advances. When um, I started uh, learning dermatology and um, even for sort of 20 years past that, we would learn the physical signs and symptoms for um, genetic disorders. And I, I'm saying this in terms of single gene disorders, really, or what we thought were single genes, because you know, some things that, that single genes have, have got more complexity around them. And you would learn the, the features in order to, to recognise them clinically. But we, we didn't automatically think that everything about our health is genetically determined. Um, and I've already alluded to eczema and psoriasis as, as common disorders. But I think of them as genetic disorders because everything we, we, we see in dermatology has got some sort of genetic basis from our skin colour, our hair colour to um, uh, parts of the skin that, that don't behave normally and we see inflammatory skin disease or cancers. And so um, I think that, that, that the mindset, the clinical mindset, has been very much focusing around there are some rare monogenetic uh, disorders that uh, you can learn features to, to recognise and try and identify those people. but but, not, but then there has been almost a mental block after that, because even if you can recognise these patients, the treatment for them has been very much focused around how that disorder impacts on, on part of their skin. So for example, a, con- a condition called Pachyonychia Congenita. I saw a, a patient on Monday. This is a condition where you get very, very thickened nails and you can get thickened areas on the palms and soles. There are some other features, but in general, those are common features with Pachyonychia Congenita. Saw a patient uh, on uh, Monday afternoon and um, this patient's uh, problems, uh, we know the, 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 gene- the keratin mutation, but this patient's main problem is pain affecting the nails. And um, so the the treatments historically have, have been, how does the disorder impact on, on your well-being? How can we target treatment for that particular symptom? Rather than taking steps back and saying, what's the genetic change? Is there something that is translational where you can identify or create a targeted therapy that may be able to treat the whole person uh, with this disorder? Um, And because of that, I think that clinicians have felt Quite helpless with a lot of genetic skin disease. I, I, I personally, I have historically, you know, go back 15 or 20 years. Yes, you can um, make a diagnosis and share that with the patient, and they may be able to join support groups, but they may not then be able, apart from joining a family of similarly affected people who may share tips on how to improve their well being, um, you can't necessarily help. Um, help in a in a targeted therapy way um, their life beyond that and, and now the world is changing so now perhaps we can and I think clinicians always want to do things to help their patients um, and so because of that I think that's where the block has been and this door opens possibilities to think beyond that.
0: Okay so lots of clinicians uh, Neil will be thinking help you know genetics, it's, that's, that's really complicated. How do I do this? But they have the Argos catalogue of genomics to help them, don't they? Tell us about that.
1: I absolutely, Vivian. And I think um, what, what um, Ruth really eloquently put across there is the breakneck speed at which this enormous tome has now been uh, advancing over the last two years, and, and perhaps a bit hidden by everything else that's been happening so importantly with the pandemic. But we've just had, I think, our our second edition updated in October of of 21, and there'll be an update every six months going forward.
0: So we're talking about the genomic test directory to give it its proper name.
1: Sorry, absolutely, yes. So in brief, the genomics test directory um, now opens the doors to dermatologists, not just geneticists anymore, to order tests in their clinics for um, up to 15 categories of conditions. So helpfully, um, experts have looked at Sets of genes that may be altered in, say, the phenotype that you would get in Pachyonychia congenita, which Ruth just touched on. And then these are tested as a panel of genes um, and, and reported within a turnaround time of four months. And so this access to testing is, is brand new. And it, it's something which we have to have a dialogue with and a conversation around about how we enable dermatologists to access this, but also to feel comfortable about accessing it and knowing that once they are in that process of being the expert phenotypers and opening the door to a molecular phenotype that they can then link in with others.
0: And they don't have to worry about not understanding what the results mean, <laughs> because that's the thing, isn't it? That you get a, a result back and you think, help, I have no idea what this result means, but people are going to be helped, aren't they?
1: Absolutely, and I think what has to be uh, made clear is that these test results are reported by experts who look at these specific areas of our human genome and look at it in the context of what's in the published literature. So if they find a piece of DNA that's different, they will check to see whether other families have had this reported before, and if it's also been uh, reported in multiple families, for example. So there is a weighting of evidence around how likely a change in your DNA is going to be the explanation for your rare single gene disorder, for example. Um, And so that help is there um, in the report, the report's written in plain English in that way.
0: So a super expert has has done the hard work for you and you're just being told the most likely thing.
1: Uh, absolutely. And and I think what, what is really helpful um is that the, the the language of the report makes it very clear when we've found something or when we've not found something, and also whether genetic counseling may be relevant. And, and I want to touch on that because there is a sense that in the past, geneticists would look at patients and they would be involved in the whole range from diagnosis through to um, delivering the diagnosis, communicating a lot of information in a very straightforward way, and then going on to you know talk about say screening therapy or genetic counseling. Here, we work in partnership with geneticists. Um, and going forward, um, what I see happening are MDTs. And we have such MDTs in Newcastle for skin genetics.
0: So these are multidisciplinary teams.
1: Sorry, I'm using acronyms, again, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and so we have around the table a dermatologist, um, two geneticists, genetic counselors, whenever a new diagnosis is, is brought forward. And then we try to decide what would be the best test to use, uh, what would be the approach, for example, to communicate this to the family, Who should we test in the family? And then at the other end, when the results come back, we discuss those and we decide, right, this needs to go to genetics, you know, because they need to talk about, say, pre-implantation diagnosis. So there's a a whole continuum. But really, we are so important in making the clinical phenotypic diagnosis and linking that to a DNA test.
0: So, Ruth, how can we help dermatologists embrace this and not to be scared by it?
2: Well, I would hope that... um that my experience um when considering this podcast um could be shared with with others certainly i looked at the directory and um, that was revised in october last year and i was thrilled by it. On several levels, you know, it really does contextualize um, the genetic component of skin disease. Um, interestingly, even though there are sections that highlight um, where dermatology is key, there were several sections where dermatologists would recognize um, them as omissions. Um, one that springs to mind, is something like ectasia, telangiectasia, ataxia telangiectasia because this disorder, even though it isn't listed in dermatology paradoxically, saw a couple of cases in the last 12 months because the immunodeficiency associated with it gives you very, very um, odd skin lesions associated with infections. And so any dermatologist picking this up with a, uh, with a level of experience would flick through it and think, but, you know, I've had a patient who um has, has has had that disorder diagnosed and presented with skin disease um in 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 a number of different ways and it, it in itself it acts as a revision aid but it, as with many things in life it's giving the um it's given the directory profile it's giving people an opportunity to re-educate and rethink genomics um, and i think that that is going to be the best way that we can get people to engage with this process. But it, it was a delight to be reminded of the many ways that genetics impact clinical practice on a daily basis. I got a lot from it and I would advocate anybody to flick
1: through
0: it. Fantastic. Neil, do you want to add to that?
1: Yes. Uh, and, and Ruth, I think um, uh, Vivian's touched on the fact that the genomic test directory is this Argos catalogue-sized home with with many pages. But very efficiently, Genomics England, with the Genetic, uh, Genomic Medicine Service, have put together a website that lets you quickly type in um, either the category or um, the clinical label or the gene, and this brings up you know, within seconds, the panel that um, the dermatologist has to write on the form—it's it, a single blood tube that gets taken, and it's—it's it's not a fancy tube; it's a full blood count tube, um, and off it goes. You know, and and so really, the process has been mainstreamed quite effectively. It's just getting the message out there. Um, I would also like to add that. Um, Health Education England have played a huge role in developing the genomics education program. And they've got um, a genomics conversation program this summer in June called Let's Talk Genomics, and, and really highlights how the conversation that we're having in dermatology is really happening across all the specialties. And what we as dermatologists want to be seen as doing is what we've always been doing, and that's to aspire to give the best care to our patients with the latest cutting edge technologies. Now in the past, this has been research, but now this is mainstream NHS care. And our patient group members across the planet are envious of the nhs and the fact that you can turn up to your gp you can say i think i've got this condition and i would like to have a genetic test and all of that can happen we have case studies from genomics england um that are coming out and one of my patients with ectodermal dysplasia had exactly that um scenario where she couldn't sweat she was you know, frustrated with the fact that she was a keen cyclist and could only go out on days which were, you know, cool. Um, So Newcastle's perfect. Um, And basically, there is this um, story of how um, when the referral came through, it was almost like a heart sink referral, you know, where there's a question of, I might have a condition, I might not have a condition. Um, I don't really know uh, where things stand, you know, could you help? And then we went from there, this, you know, it's a very subtle phenotype, Ruth, as you say, because um, this patient's hair was, you know, just a little bit thinner, her teeth were a, a little bit different. Um, and then we found out that she had, you know, a, a change in one of the exodermal dysplasia genes within four months, and then uh, we were away.
0: Now, before we come to the end, I, I want to quickly touch on the skin G-sip, which I, I know you're hugely enthusiastic about, uh, Neil. Just tell us what you do in your huddle of dermatologists.
1: Absolutely, Vivian. And so I must at this point mention Professor Adele O'Toole from Queen Mary University in London, who I co-lead the skin GCN with. And we've been involved in looking at a range of different genetic conditions, some of which have informed uh, aspects of the test directory. And I'd like to come back to um, patients with ectodermal dysplasia, for example. So those patients were individuals for which genetic testing was very hard to get. Um, before the era of the 100,000 project and the GMSs, one would have to find a specialist lab somewhere in Europe, somewhere in America, and send a piece of DNA off in a tube and wait for sometimes two or three years just to know uh, whether or not there was a change. And and so it was that sort of... Um, space that we came from. And, and with the skin G we've been able to link these different patients with phenotypes together, use the scale of a whole nation of you know more than 50 million people to then start to make sense of genetic changes. And so for a lot of patients with ectodermal dysplasia, for the first time we were able to give them a genetic diagnosis. And this has been you know a, a huge step for them. I should also mention that the ectodermal dysplasia patients have a patient group and they're really active in this space.
0: And I think there are something like 3,000 dermatology cases within the 100,000 Genome Project data set.
1: Yes. So we've we've got um, several thousand um, individuals that have been recruited by enthusiastic clinicians. Uh, It's important to mention Adele again, Celia Moss, uh, all these different experts, John McGrath across the country, putting cases in um, to help Advance understanding by simply by using the fact we can use whole genome sequencing technologies um, rather than what we could use before, which was sort of single um, DNA disorders. Ruth.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's also important to to realise that a lot of the physical signs we see on the skin can actually link to involvement of other systems. So even though we're talking about genetic skin disease, some of those genetic skin disorders are linking into other organ um other organs which are involved. Um, and sometimes the skin is a window in to being able to make those diagnoses, which may uh, also save a patient's life. So while, uh, whilst I accept as a dermatologist that the skin is the largest organ in the body and is the focus of, of this conversation, it is often a window in to uh, internal pathologies and dermatologists are in a position to identify these patients.
0: I have to tell you that I've been uh, sitting in the tube with dermatologists and they cannot stop themselves from diagnosing people sitting opposite and you'll come away and they'll say I wonder if they have that <laughs> well now with genomics you'll be able to say yeah that's exactly what they did have Neil <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Vivian
1: I just wanted to. Build on on what Ruth just said there about how, you know, the the skin is a window in. And and a really important example is this condition known as Lynch syndrome, where patients have an increased risk of of bowel and endometrial cancer. And in this um, particular genetic condition, individuals are at risk of cancer in multiple tissues. But in the skin, they get a particular type of, of rare skin tumor. Now, the really unusual thing is, unlike all the other cancers in Lynch syndrome, sebaceous tumors in the skin are an indicator that the person uh, may have um, a genetic condition from which they could benefit from cancer surveillance and chemo prevention with a cheap intervention like aspirin. So here is a scenario where a, a result comes through on, on a, a, the table of a dermatologist from a pathologist saying this patient has, has a sebaceous tumor. It won't happen, you know, very often, but when it does, we now have the ability to say, ah, we can look into this a bit more, we can offer genetic testing. And if this patient has Lin syndrome, then we can give them um, aspirin and that could potentially reduce their cancer risk. And, and isn't that a fantastic thing that, you know we are seeing um, this uh, tissue uh, all the time, but it, it's a window into underlying um, health and, and we can actually make a difference to that health with you know, things we've got today at a very low cost. Absolutely.
0: So uh, just to sum uh, up, what would you say, um, Ruth, to patients about the new genomic medicine service and dermatology?
2: Well, I'd be enthusiastic that we have a facility to um, collect essential uh, clinical data that we can identify with more, um, with, with more precision because of the possibility and the advancements in genetic testings. And this will allow us to create uh, more appropriate therapies to help their disorder and I think that uh, because of it we should uh, both as clinicians and patients embrace the opportunity to do genetic testing whenever we see one of these rarer disorders I think if people have a constellation of features that don't fit a known disorder then um, in line with a similar approaches to the genome pro thousand genome project, hundred thousand genome project rather, um, that um we can take blood and hopefully um using the deep phenotyping use it to translate to some genetic changes in the future. So I see it in, in both ways, what's known and using the facility for the unknown unknowns at the moment.
0: And Neil, what would you say to your fellow dermatologists who are kind of teetering on the edge and a bit worried about genomics? I, I
1: Vivian, I think I would say it's yet another chance for us to really make a difference in, in patient care. And I think um, that anxiety will always be there when we try something new. But as dermatologists, you know, we've embraced um, allergy testing, we've embraced laser, we've embraced various surgical interventions. So we've always been trying to bring the best care to our patients. And and so in, in that stride, you know, um, taking on genetic testing, knowing that it'll be supported by a broader service around us, um, I think will really um, add to the quality of care that we give. And so I think that, that will be the, the draw, that we can actually deliver better care for our patients.
0: And I'd just say one thing to patients who are going into the GMS is that they will be asked for their consent for the actual genomic sequencing, but then they'll also be asked whether they would consent to research. And I would strongly urge them to be part of that research because it's critically important for everybody with skin conditions that there are more cases added because the more cases that are added to the National Genomic Research Library the better that we'll be able to diagnose and treat skin conditions in the future it's been such a pleasure listening uh, uh, to you both and uh, more power to the skin gps elbow and thank you ruth for taking time for your uh, from your busy day that's all for this episode thanks so much for listening to this discussion about the g word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society remember to subscribe to the g word on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen if you have views on these topics if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview then do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk and Do remember, if you've enjoyed listening, giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series, and we'd appreciate it very much. I've been Vivian Parry. See you on the next episode of The G Word.